Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Our reading this morning is Acts 1, 1 through 5. In the first, in the first book, Old Philophius, I have dealt with all Jesus became to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John Baptist, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It was time for Jesus to say goodbye. Again. This time, though, he was saying goodbye after he had triumphed over sin and death. Because he had died on the cross for our sins, but then he had risen on the third day, and then he spent the next 40 days appearing to many witnesses, especially to his closest followers, his apostles. And he discussed God's kingdom. And now after all of that, things were changing again. And Jesus talked about it with them. God's promises that had been made for centuries were being fulfilled by what was changing. But his apostles still weren't quite sure what to expect of it all. And that chapter 1 continued with verse 6. So when they come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The apostles knew some things that day. As they gathered there with Jesus, they knew. He is God's Son. They knew He's the one that Scripture had been pointing to, that God had anointed to be King over all. They knew He was the one that they chose to follow. That He is the one who really reigns. Nobody else who claims power and authority on earth. He was the true King. That day they also learned some things that they even still hadn't fully realized yet. That Jesus' reign would be reigning from Heaven for a while. But then, one day, he'd come back. 
Now that's all pretty clear. That's all pretty clear for them. That's all pretty clear to us because none of those statements are controversial, especially not in a room full of Christians like this one. But even if you feel really solid about all the things that happened with Jesus, even if you feel pretty clear about where this story ultimately ends, the stuff that happens in between can still be awfully murky. Even when you believe in Jesus, even when you know where the story ends, where things ultimately work out, and even for his apostles as they were there. Because Jesus told them, I want you guys to wait. Okay, well, where? Well, he said, in Jerusalem. Okay, but what were they waiting for? Well, he said to receive power from the Holy Spirit. Well, that's great. What was that power for? So that they can be witnesses of Jesus. That's all really clear, straightforward stuff, right? But have you ever considered, as far as we know, Jesus didn't tell them how long they were going to have to wait. He just told them to wait. He doesn't seem to tell them how they know the Holy Spirit had come. And he didn't seem to give them step-by-step instructions ahead of time for exactly what they should do moment-by-moment when the Spirit did come. Now that might be uncomfortable for us because sometimes that's what we expect God's Word to be. We expect it to be exact instructions to the minutest detail, especially when it comes to the hour we spend together on Sunday mornings. Or, if that's not our viewpoint, we make it the other extreme. Where we say, well, Jesus gave them instructions. But they don't really apply to us. They don't have much bearing on how we navigate life. But the reality is we need God's direction. Because life is messy. It's complicated. And we believe Jesus is God's Son. We believe He's coming again. There's some stuff that He wants us to get done. But what we do between now and then can be as murky for us as it was for Jesus' apostles. Suppose you're here right now and you're single. But you really want to be married. You just know about yourself. You want to enjoy some companionship in your life. Maybe you want to have a family of your own. Maybe you're interested in experiencing physical intimacy. But right now, you don't know who that person might be. You don't know when you might find them. You don't know how you're going to meet them. Or maybe even if you will. And that can be a source of worry when you're in that place. So what do you do? Or what do you do if you're here right now as somebody that's trying to figure out how to raise an adolescent? You have to address defiance, rebelliousness, but you've got to find a way to do it that doesn't crush their spirit, that doesn't stifle their ability to become independent, functioning adults. So how do you navigate that and decide what's the priority? What's the thing that's really worth fighting about? The hills that are worth dying on? 
What are the things that are okay? Might it be your first choice? Might it be the way you want it to be? But you know what? We're just going to let this go and let them learn by doing. And how do you draw all those lines? Those are some of the real areas of life that can be a little murky. Do you think God cares about those? Do those issues have any effect on how we experience our relationship with Him? I think so. Seems pretty obvious that things that important to who we are, to our lives, it's going to affect the relationship that we have with God. So then, are those things under the reign of Jesus, or is He only concerned with the steps that we follow on Sunday morning? What if you're here right now with somebody that's in a lot of pain? Or somebody who's sick? You have to make decisions about treatment. Do you get surgery or shots? Do you take this medicine or that medicine or do some therapy? Or do you maybe do nothing at all? Do you think Jesus cares about the pain that you have? Or maybe you're here right now and you don't. Because maybe you're here as somebody that's struggling with doubt. And even as you hear me say so confidently, we all believe in Jesus is God's Son. We all believe He's coming back. You're honestly not so sure. And you'd be embarrassed to admit it, but it's true and it's kind of how you feel. Or maybe you're here right now and you're actually in a really good place. you got opportunities to expand your business or you've got an offer for a new job or you're thinking about buying a new house. But even as you're in that good place, how do you decide? How do you decide which step to take? Or maybe you're here right now and you find yourself in the midst of hiring a new minister. Well, how might you go about that? Is it just about advertising? Identifying candidates? Writing contracts? That's super important. Paying enough? Well, then you might say, well, the Bible doesn't really cover that, right? So how do you handle it? How do you handle it if through that process you get two really great guys, but they're really different? Or how do you handle it if through that process you go a while and you don't really have much of anybody? What do you do? Does that fall under the reign of Jesus? Can he give direction or help? You see, life, real life, gets murky. We believe that Jesus is Christ. We believe He's the King. We know that He's coming back. We even know that there is stuff that He wants us to accomplish between now and then, but we don't always know where to start. We don't always know what it looks like for us to live that out when we find ourselves in those uncertain places. So what should we do? Well, I'd ask, what did these guys do? In Acts chapter 1, continuing with verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women 
and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. When you believe, like these guys do, that Jesus is king, when you want to live for him, but you aren't sure where to start, I recommend praying. But, and I've been here long enough to know this, this is the point where some say, I did that already. Or this is the point where some think, well, does it really make a difference? I mean, if God already knows everything, yada, yada, yada. So here's the deal. If that's where you are, I love you. But for the next few minutes, I'm not talking to you right now. Because if you haven't been convinced in five years, I'm not going to convince you in the next five minutes. So bookmark this one, and as God brings you to a different place, come back to it. It'll be on the website for a long time. You can come back and check it out when you're ready for it. Because right now, I am talking to the brothers and sisters who are ready to talk about this. I'm talking to the brothers or sisters who have done Mission One training and have started praying with their spouse or with their kids or with other Christian brothers and sisters. I'm talking to the brothers and sisters right here who have tried to really start praying on the spot, whether that's on the phone with a relative or at the gym with an acquaintance or here after services when people express things that they're hurting about. Even though praying on the spot like that is awkward, especially at first. I'm talking to the people who aren't sitting here when I talk about praying and immediately start justifying why their prayer life is already fine the way it is or immediately start justifying why we don't have to pray. The people who actually want to grow in praying, for the next couple of minutes, I'm talking to you. Because that's what we see here in Acts chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, family and friends, <clears throat> devoted themselves to prayer. Think about that wording for a second. Devoting themselves to prayer. Do you think that that was descriptive of these guys opening and closing their service once a week? Twice? They had midweek Bible study with a prayer while they waited for the Spirit to come. In your mind, is that what devoting yourself to prayer looks like? That these guys got together on Sunday, prayed a couple times, got together on Wednesday, prayed a couple times, and then, wow, Holy Spirit showed up. Look, now we know what to do. Is that the image that you get when you read devoting yourselves to prayer? Because that's not the image that I get. I don't get the image of like, oh yeah, I pray. Yep, we bless our meals. I say, now I lay me with the kids before they go to sleep. I'm not saying, oh yeah, no, we're praying about the minister search. Every time we meet, we start with a prayer and we end with a prayer. Super. So out of an hour, we spend approximately two minutes of it in prayer. Is that devoted to prayer? The way we see it depicted here? That's the way most American Christians do it, right? I mean, if we're honest, if we reflect, 
That's normally the approach that we take to prayer. But what do we see happening here? See, those things that we're used to doing, that we normally do, it's a start. It's certainly better than nothing. Like, it's much better than not praying at all. But if we want to navigate murkiness, if we want to find our way through difficult situations and come out the other side actually glorifying God, we need more than just that. We need to be devoted to prayer. We need to adopt a view where prayer is not something that we do because it's just how we start things or how we end things or because we're supposed to. We need to view prayer as a response to the situation that we're dealing with. We have to view prayer as the way that we start working with God even while we're uncertain. So if you're waiting for Mr. or Miss Wright, pray. If you've received a scary diagnosis or you're struggling with some doubts, pray. If you're dealing with a difficult kid, pray. I'll do you even one better. Pray with the kid. Let them hear you say to God that you don't know how to help them, but you want to, but you love them, and you just want what's best for them. Pray. The example here from Jesus' earliest followers is one of viewing prayer as something that we actively do that makes a big difference. It supports God's working in the world in a very real way, and it gets our hearts and minds aligned with that. We're seeking what God wants, but because we're seeking it, because we're devoted to seeking it, that means we start looking for it. Because we're devoted to prayer, we start noticing when God does something. And because we're doing it together, it helps us get aligned with each other. It lets us test. Do you, did you see that? Did you notice that? Did you hear that? Do you think that might be the answer to what we were praying? It gives us a chance to be amazed. Did you, did you see that? Can you believe that? That's like exactly what we prayed for. And it just happened. Because truly being devoted to prayer, the way these guys and gals were, leads to spirit-led action. Because in verse 15 of Acts 1, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and followed Pedro and burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Akadama, that is field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another Take his office. Have you ever wondered how the apostles decided that they needed to replace Judas? 
Because it doesn't seem here like Jesus had told them to. Otherwise, I feel like Peter would have just said that. Like, oh, guys, we need to do that thing Jesus told us to do. We need to pick a 12th apostle. But that's not what Peter did here. No, his reasoning came from the scriptures, and specifically from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And I think sometimes when we read, Spirit spoke by the mouth of David, I think we sometimes imagine that that means that those psalms were really always about Judas. Like David's eyes rolled back in his head and the Holy Spirit started using him as a meat puppet. And then he looked down and saw that he wrote scripture that would only mean something a thousand years later. But that's not how inspiration works. That's not how scripture ever describes it. Because if you look at Psalm 109, for instance, that's where that phrase, may another take his office, came from. You'll see that across that whole psalm, David himself, a thousand years before Jesus was born, was dealing with wicked and deceitful mouths that were attacking him without cause. Now that found its ultimate fulfillment in Judas's heinous betrayal of the one and only truly sinless one. But it meant something to David, too, when he wrote it. And you can read that psalm and see why Peter would think of that. Why the Spirit would bring that to Peter's remembrance as they thought about what went down between Jesus and Judas. It shows us a way of searching the Scriptures, but especially a way of applying the Scriptures that goes beyond our most common approaches of breaking up verses into ironclad checklists or just saying, ah, that was for them. It doesn't apply to us. So appreciate. While waiting for what the Spirit would do next, in an uncertain time, the followers of Jesus got together, talked about the Bible, and sought to apply it to their situation. In the case of appointing another apostle, that required that they understood what Jesus did. Hey, he chose 12 apostles. That's kind of like how there are 12 tribes of Israel. That's like a renewal of the kingdom. They tested that against Scripture. Passages dealing with that kind of situation, like Psalm 109 that spoke of replacing the deceitful and the treacherous with others. So devoting themselves to prayer, searching the Scriptures together, they determined that if we want to be ready for whenever and whatever it is the Spirit does next, we need to go ahead now and appoint a 12th apostle so that when that time comes, we're ready to advance Christ's kingdom. Through prayer and scripture, the Spirit led them into specific steps that they could take in their uncertain situation. And look where they focused. Their focus was entirely on Jesus. Because in Acts chapter 1 and verse 26, or Acts chapter 1, verse 21 through 26, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out and among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen 
to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots him, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, if you were picking an apostle, what would you look for? Maybe the focus needs to be on credentials. Because you need somebody that can step into a synagogue anywhere. And people will really pay attention because he's so well qualified, right? Or maybe not, because that wasn't what Jesus was like. That's not what the other apostles were like. And Jesus came in with the authority of the Son of God, and the synagogue crowd rejected him. Well, so then maybe it's age. Like, you obviously want to get an apostle that's an older guy. Because you want somebody that's had some life experience. You want somebody that has some wisdom. Or, obviously, you want to get for an apostle somebody that's a younger guy. Because you need to have somebody that has some energy, that has some stamina. Or maybe we really need to look for an apostle that's got a good family. Because just the demands of being an apostle are so great, you're going to need to get somebody that's got a good support system or... It's really dangerous, and it's really risky to be an apostle. So maybe it would be better to get a single guy. Maybe it would be better to find somebody who can truly just give their whole focus. As they devoted themselves to prayer, as they searched and applied the scripture, where did these folks focus? Jesus. You see that? It wasn't older or younger. It wasn't married or single. They focus on Jesus. How they narrow down the options? Jesus. Who'd been with them from John's baptism through the resurrection? Well, why that? Because that's what it took to do what Jesus wanted done. He had told them, I want witnesses. So if they're going to find somebody to serve his church in this way, they needed somebody who could be a witness. Now, incidentally, that's why we don't appoint apostles today. Why we don't say that we've got successors for them, because there's nobody on earth that's still living that was a witness of Jesus' baptism through to his resurrection. But we can still learn from the example that they set. Because when you're single and you really want to find that special somebody, where should you focus? Jesus. When you're making decisions about treatment options or job opportunities, where should you focus? Jesus. How can I glorify him through this? How will this impact my relationship with him? And then what should we focus on as we look for a minister? More than if they're an older guy or a younger guy. More than what their schooling or work experience or family composition is like. We need to focus on... Jesus. What is his relationship 
with Jesus? How has he witnessed Jesus changing his life? How will he help others experience that? How has he helped others experience that? Because you can find a great speaker, someone who, unlike me, never goes over 20 minutes and holds everybody's attention the whole time. I've not once been able to do that. You think you doze off and I don't notice? And I'm not just talking Charlie, I'm talking elders and deacons. I know when we doze off. So you might find somebody that knows all that psychology about human attention spans and can wrap up the sermon in exactly 20 minutes. But they could be not devoted to prayer. They could feel just as helpless as anybody when somebody around them is hurting. You know, I guess I should go say something, but I don't know what to say. What if I say the wrong thing? They could be a real smooth speaker, but be just as nervous or just as distracted as anybody else so that they're not ready to share Jesus with the people that are around them that they bump into as they go out and out. And that's fine if Jesus only reigns over Sunday mornings. If Jesus' reign is just about making sure we check the right boxes for an hour and a half once a week, smoothest, funniest preacher with the best PowerPoints that everybody just loves hiring, super duper. But if Jesus is really king, if Jesus is really coming back and there's some stuff that he wants his people to get done between now and then, then it's time for us to wait and to pray. Over whatever murky situation that we find ourselves in. Whatever it is in your life, whatever it is in your relationships, whatever business opportunity you're considering, whatever health challenge it is you're facing, we wait and we pray over all of it. We devote ourselves to pray. We devote ourselves to really thinking deeply about Scripture, about what God is doing in this world and how that applies to me and what I'm doing and how I'm going to live for Him each day. We do this together. Brothers and sisters, friends and family, working through these things in prayer and scripture together. We do it with a total focus on Jesus. Because nothing is more important in a spouse than faith in Jesus. Nothing is more important in raising your teenager than raising them in faith in Jesus. Nothing's more important about what house you call home, what job you get your paycheck from, what minister you put in what pulpit, than Jesus. He is what matters the most.
as we focus on Jesus, as we seek Him out this way, the Spirit will lead. King Jesus will reign. God will bless. And no matter what happens, we'll get to rejoice with Him.